invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We return to our summer series we're doing this summer on the 12. Uh, you would perhaps consider them disciples or apostles, both would be appropriate. There were many disciples, by the way, and only 12 apostles. Perhaps you would mention 13. Matthias replaces Judas, then maybe 14. Paul considers himself an apostle and identifies as an apostle. And we could go on, perhaps, and include others, depending on your perspective. But for our purposes this summer, we will consider the 12. Today we come to the third of those 12, the man called James. So uh, as has been our pattern, we want to begin by uh, identifying the question or answering the question, who is James? And so we will consult with Mark chapter 1 to begin with. Let's read beginning in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So uh, this passage, along with several others, will help us think a little bit about James, uh, try to find out who this man is. As we can tell in this passage, he is the brother of another disciple who we'll consider next week, John. He is probably the older of the two. The Bible never says explicitly that James is the older brother, but he's always listed first. It's always James and John, never John and James. Where I come from, that means you're the oldest. Uh, he's always uh, listed as a son of Zebedee. And you'll note here in verse 19, he called James the son of Zebedee. Now you and I would say, well, who is Zebedee? And the answer to that is we don't know for sure, but he's a man who seems to be prominent Again, we have to assume, we don't really know, because the Bible never gives us any uh, explicit details about Zebedee, but he is apparently uh, a man of some standing. Uh, the reason we, we say so is because he keeps being mentioned. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now the implication there is you may not know James and John, but I bet you know their dad. I bet you know Zebedee, because he's not an unimportant man. He is a man of seeming prominence. You'll note in verse 20, immediately called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. So he has a fishing business and the fishing business is bigger than Zebedee, James, and John because there are also employees in the fishing business. Here they're called hired servants. So he's a man of some prominence. There is one more clue perhaps we could learn about Zebedee, and that is that, and you, you've got to again do a bit of an assumption, but you perhaps can. You may remember that in the, the night that Jesus is betrayed, he is taken to the home of the high priest first. In the middle of the night, against Jewish law, Jesus is uh, called in before the high priest, and he asked essentially a kangaroo court put on trial uh, before the high priest and others. All this happens in the middle of the night. The Bible says that the disciples who are there when the mob comes to arrest Jesus in the garden, the disciples scatter except for two of them. And in John's account, we shall see this next week, in John chapter 18, verse 15, the Bible says that the disciple whom Jesus loved, as we shall talk about next week, is probably John. 
The disciple whom Jesus loved follows him along with Peter. So two of the 12, two of the 11 now, follow Jesus. And so they enter, as it were, the the courtyard, the outer courtyard outside the house of the high priest. But but John tells us that uh, one of those disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who he never identifies as himself, but he says he is known to the high priest. John is known to the high priest. Now you might ask this question, how does a Galilean fisherman how does he become known to the high priest? The high priest is in Jerusalem. Galilee is up north. It'd be a bit like us. Again, I mean no aspersions here. But how does a man from Grenada, how does a man from Winona become known in the halls of power? Because he, he's a man of some prominence. That's how. I'm telling you, everybody in Winona is not known in Jackson, Mississippi. Can I get an amen on that? I can assure you that's the case. Well, here's a man who runs a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, and he's got two boys. And his boy is known to the high priest of all of Israel. How does that happen? Because his daddy is known. So what does it mean to be a son of Zebedee? We don't know for sure. But it means that your daddy is somebody. And he is mentioned again and again as the son of Zebedee. We also know that this man, James, is one of the innermost circle of disciples. I mentioned earlier that there are, if you will, 12 disciples, and they're always listed in similar order. And the first four are always listed in identical order. And so it's always Peter Andrew, James, and John. So then you will find that there's an inner circle that leaves Andrew out for the most part, and it's always Peter, James, and John. And it's interesting that these three are given priority in three very important experiences with Christ. In Mark chapter 5, verse 21 and following, Jesus heals the daughter of a man named Jairus. The daughter is very ill. Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue, reaches out to Jesus and said, come heal my daughter. So here we have a ruler of the synagogue. A ruler of the synagogue are typically Pharisees. They have no affinity for Jesus whatsoever. But this man is desperate. Forget all the protocols. Forget all of the rules. Forget all of the politics. My daughter is near death. And this man is reported to be a healer. I need this man. Jairus comes to Jesus. And the scripture says that Jesus leaves the nine and he brings three of them with him, Peter, James, and John. Those three. And they witness the healing of Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. There's a second experience where uh, James is included, and that is in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that experience? Jesus goes up on the mountain. He is transfigured. He has this blazing light that falls upon him, and he, he is transfigured in such a way they can't even recognize him because of this blazing light. And on the mount there, Jesus meets with Elijah and Moses, the great prophet and the great lawgiver. They come from heaven. Another testimony of eternal life, by the way. How do we know that eternal life is actually true? Because Elijah, though dead, is alive. Moses, though dead, is alive. On the Mount of Transfiguration, only three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John, are present. There's a third experience, Mark chapter 14. The scripture says that Jesus has served the Lord's Supper. He has announced that he has to go to the cross. They are moving out of the upper room and moving toward the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked the men to pray with him. And then he asked Peter, James, and John, those three, to privately move ahead of the others and pray with him privately. So these men are a part of an inner circle And James is certainly 
one of them. Another thing we know about this man named James is that he's given a prominent nickname. Consider just a couple of chapters over, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Mark 3 and verse 13. The scripture says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, and here's the list, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Now, Mark alone of all the Gospels includes this phrase, the sons of thunder, or this nickname. So he's nicknamed along with his brother as the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. I don't know what that means to you, but I would say to everybody, uh, Around us, it would suggest that they perhaps have a fiery disposition. That would not be an unrealistic assumption. They perhaps have a fiery disposition. Now, we don't know exactly the context for this nickname. We know that Jesus took Simon and gave him the name Peter, implying that his faith was to grow, as it were, into a rock, Petros, Peter, is a derivative from the same root as the word for rock, Petra. And so the suggestion is that Peter is to be a rock, and indeed he is, for the disciples. So what does he mean by this nickname, Sons of Thunder? Well, some have suggested it's just a, sort of Jesus being playful with these two brothers. Maybe so, don't know. Uh, it may be that Jesus gives them this nickname because this is completely indicative of their personality, sort of speak first and make consideration later. Or when they make a decision, they're all in, they're aggressive, they're fiery, they're passionate, they're zealous, who knows exactly what all is meant. But it, it seems to be that these men are innate leaders. James, Peter especially. In two of the four listing, there are four listing of the 12 disciples, in two of the four, James' name follows Peter, as it does here in verse 10, of, rather verse 16 of Mark 3. He appointed the 12, Simon, and then James. James is no insignificant person. He is an innate leader. I would suggest that we should pay attention to that as we reflect on his life. There is one more thing we know about James, and that is that he is the only one of the 12 whose death is actually recorded in the scripture. In Acts chapter 12, to turn there with me because we'll come back here in a moment, Acts chapter 12, the scripture records the death of James. He is the first uh, of the 12 who is martyred. By the way, church tradition and extra-biblical history, Jewish history outside of the Bible, records uh, the death of all of the 12. But nowhere in the Bible are the other 11, or in this case 10, because we do know of the death of Judas. But the other men, their deaths are not recorded in the Scripture. But we know this of James. You'll see it here in verse 1, Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You might say, well, if James was a really big deal, they would have made a really big deal over his death. Well, I would suggest to you, if that's your logic, the Bible doesn't record the deaths of any of the others. So if that's the measure of whether this is a really big man, the measure of whether or not the Bible makes a really big deal about his death, then James is the only one the Bible actually records. So James is the 
biggest of all the big men, so-called. I would suggest to you that's a poor way of judging whether or not he is an important disciple. He is the only one of the 12 whose death is recorded. And you'll note that it is a martyr's death. We'll come back to this in some detail in a moment. I want to try to make this morning two applications of James' life to our lives and challenge our hearts to think about the implications of these experiences in James's life. Beyond the things that we read here or have read already, there are several other passages that will help us. But I want to specifically identify two circumstances, two passages that help us learn from the life of James and seek to apply them for our own lives. The first is, I would propose that from James's life, we can learn the beauty of the gospel. From James' life, we can learn the beauty of the gospel. In order to understand this, let's turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. <coughs> Luke 9, 51. <clears throat> this is uh, in the middle of a section where Jesus transitions his ministry out of Galilee in the north toward Jerusalem in the south. You'll note that the Bible makes clear that a prophet has to die in Jerusalem and that Jesus has come in order to die in Jerusalem. And uh, so there needs to be a transition from his Galilean ministry into his Judean ministry. And that is occurring here in Luke chapter 9. So that's the reason for the phrase that we're about to read, verse 51. When the, dra- the days drew near for him to be taken up, to be killed, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he's in Samaria, rather he's in Galilee, and in between Galilee and Judea is this region called Samaria. I'll say more about that momentarily. So he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now I'm reading from the ESV translation. If you read from an older translation, your verse 55 concludes with this phrase. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. That phrase is in dispute by people who evaluate the manuscript evidence for the Bible. We will not argue for or against whether that phrase should be included I would make the case that, in fact, that phrase is perfectly legitimate, perfectly uh, biblical. Even if it's not included here, it's included elsewhere in the Scripture. So he turned and rebuked them because their spirit, their understanding of the ministry or work of the Son of Man was wrong because the Son of Man had not come to call down fire from heaven or destroy people, but rather to save them. We shall see that momentarily. Now, to fully understand this particular passage and its implication of the gospel, you have to understand some of the geography as well as some of the history of this region. This is Samaria. Now, our our most famous Samaritans in the New Testament are twofold. One, the Good Samaritan. We've heard of him, the Good Samaritan. The Jews have a prejudice against the Samaritans, which I'll explain momentarily. So the fact that Jesus used a good Samaritan amongst Jews is oxymoronish. Because among Jews, there are no good Samaritans. There are only bad Samaritans. So it's With intention, Jesus makes clear that the hero of his parable is indeed a good Samaritan because God loves them as well. The the second most famous, if you will, Samaritan is John chapter 4, the woman at the well. 
John chapter 4. You'll remember it's at noon, and here is a woman who comes to draw water at noon. Jesus is walking through Samaria, stops at the well, and asks her for a drink. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for water? Because everybody knows you Jews are prejudiced against us Samaritans. Well, here's Jesus again, Luke chapter 9. He's on his way to Jerusalem, leaving Galilee, headed to Jerusalem. There he will ultimately be crucified and resurrected. And he has to go through Samaria. So he sends his men ahead to a village and says, the master's coming. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Really? Why? Because Jerusalem is where the prophets go to die. He's a prophet and he's going to die and so forth and all of this. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. Well, the Samaritans, you'll remember in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. But we say that the place of worship is in Samaria. And she mentions in John chapter 4 a particular mountain, Mount Gerizim. If you go to Israel today, you can see Mount Gerizim. And there is no temple there, though there was one. Now, who are these Samaritans? A little backstory, perhaps will help us all. You'll recall that the, the northern kingdom is led by bad kings, and eventually they're all deported to Assyria. But they left some of them there, and they brought some of the Assyrians in to repopulate these cities and towns. So you have, you have Jewish people who are left there, Jewish people who are deported, and you have Assyrian people who are deported in. And they populate the, the northern area, if you will, that region called Samaria. And these people came to be called Samaritans because Samaria is the town where their capital was. All right, that sounds all well and good, except that the, the Jewish law forbids intermarrying with people who are not believers. It has nothing to do with race. There is no biblical prohibition against interracial marriage. The only biblical prohibition against marriage is interfaith marriage. And in this case, you have Jewish people who are, their towns are populated now by Samaritans. And so these boys, these girls, they grow up amongst these people and they begin to marry. And these people come to be called Samaritans. They bring with them, and the reason there's the biblical prohibition is because they bring with them their worship of, of false gods. So there are Assyrian gods who are brought into the worship of the one true God. Now, these Samaritans claim they're still worshiping Jehovah, but they're doing it according to the practices of the Assyrians. So they're, if you will, they're, they're becoming acculturated to the world. They're becoming like the world. We know as Christian people, we are to live in the world, but not be of the world. God has called us to live distinct lives. We're a chosen race, a peculiar people, set aside for God. We are to be different from the world. And so it was. These Jews began to adopt the worship practices of these Assyrians, so much so that they even set up another mountain for their temple. They build a temple, uh, and they worship the so-called one true God, but they do it in different ways, with different practices, and so forth. And it is a perversion to the Orthodox who remain pure. It is completely a perversion. But in spite of that, you'll note that Jesus has an affinity for a good Samaritan, has an affinity for a Samaritan woman at the well. And even here, when his disciples say, should we call down fire? Jesus says, you don't know what spirit is in you because the Son of Man came not to destroy people, but to save them. Now again, you have to understand why these guys, why would James and John say, should we call down fire? Well, in order to understand that, you've got to go back to the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 1. 
2 Kings chapter 1. It will uh, be important for you to remember this story as you reflect upon the New Testament again and again. 2 Kings 1, I'll just begin there in verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel, and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. So Ahaziah is the son of Ahab. He is the king, and he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Now, this is, a, this is a pagan deity. So here we have, again, this king in the north, if you will, in the region that is now called Samaria in the New Testament, who is sick, and he wants to know whether he's going to die. So he says, I want you to go and inquire of the pagan god and I want that God and their prophets to tell my fortune, so to speak. By the way, the Bible has 100% unilateral prohibition against such. There's no debate. This notion of, of inquiring with the dead, so-called necromancing, this notion of, of having your fortune told, examining the future, speaking to the dead. All these kinds of so-called dark magic practices are completely forbidden in Scripture. Christian people, God's people, are to have nothing to do with such. These are practices of pagans, not the practices of God's people. So here you have the king of the northern kingdom, Isaiah, who's sick. He fell through the lattice of his upper chamber. And he says, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover. So, verse 3, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Elijah's the prophet, the Tishbite, rise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So there's your message. So Elijah went. Verse 5, the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to them, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus said the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they said, Well, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And the king sent him a captain of 50 men with his 50. And he went up to Elijah who was sitting on top of a hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then Fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. That's the end of you. So again, the king sent him another captain with his 50. And he answered and he said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. The fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50. Don't you Aren't you glad you're not this guy? I want you to go and do what two guys before you have done, and they're both French fries. But don't worry. It's going to be fine. Verse 13. The third captain of the 50 went up, came, fell on his knees for Elijah, and he treated him. Oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. In other words, he knew who he's dealing with. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of the 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, by the way, God always responds to humility. God never responds to pride. 
Then the angel of the Lord, verse 15, said to Elijah, Go down with him, don't be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Because you sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died. He died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah spoken. Jehoram became king in his palace, in his place rather, in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now where did all this fire fall from heaven? In the region now called Samaria. So go back with me to Luke chapter 9. A Samaritan village rejects Jesus. A Samaritan village has no plans for Jesus. But Jesus has plans for them. They don't know it. They don't recognize it. His own disciples don't even recognize it. But his disciples know enough of 2 Kings 1 that they know that this is the place where you call down fire from heaven and you spank the bad boys. You deal with them. You judge them. You you hate them. And you're justified in doing so because these people are evil and because they have perverted the true worship of God. These people are bad, 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 bad. And they deserve fire from heaven, just like Elijah called down. So who voices this? Verse 54. When his disciples James and John saw it. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Because that's where this happens. <laughs> Jesus said, no, you don't understand. Turn over a few chapters to Luke 15. Luke 15. Maybe you don't even need to turn there because you know what happens in Luke 15. There are three parables in Luke 15. There is a lost sheep, there is a lost coin, and there is a lost son. And of particular interest to us this morning is this parable of the lost son. You'll remember the story. It's pretty famous. Boy takes his dad's inheritance and he goes off and he spends it. King James calls it riotous living. Basically, the the boy is a complete uh, dumpster fire for morality, for financial stewardship, and for maintaining any sort of self-respect. The boy goes off and wastes his life and his dad's money, which is his money. He comes to his senses, of course, and he goes home. And you'll remember the story. The father is on the porch. He sees the boy coming a far way off, and he runs to meet the boy. He falls on his neck, and he kisses him. He calls his servants, and he says, I want you to kill the fatted calf. Go get a robe for my boy and a ring for his finger. We're going to have a party because my boy who was lost is found. But of course, the point of the story is not the lost boy. You say, well, maybe it is. Well, yeah, sure. The lost boy is the skeleton that holds up the story. But the point of the story is the older son. The the prodigal story is not about the young boy. It's about the older boy. Because the point is, the older boy rejects the notion that you are to be merciful. He rejects the notion that you are to persist in love. He rejects the notion that we are not to be judgmental to the point of hating people or banishing people or or excising people and saying they have no value whatsoever and and counting them as non-persons. That's what the older brother's attitude was. And the rebuke of Luke 15 is the older boy. It's the older boy that's the point. Now, how is that, what has that got to do with Luke 9? Is this the place where you want us to hate these people? No, I haven't come to hate these people. So in Luke 15, he tells us three stories, a lost son, a lost sheep, a lost coin. 
And he talks about the joy of the owner of the sheep and the owner of the coin and the owner of the son, the father. And he talks about the joy they have in in reclaiming that which was lost. And then Jesus summarizes all of that. Finally, when you get to Luke 19, the conclusion of Luke 19, Jesus makes clear in the story of Zacchaeus. He enters Jericho, verse 1, and he was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He not run of the mill tax collector. All right? This isn't some rookie. This is Zacchaeus. He is a chief tax collector. He's a supervisor. He is a manager. He's rich, very rich. And he's seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't see. He was small of stature. He runs on ahead, climbs up in a sycamore tree, for he's about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. For I must stay at your house today. Several of you want to break off into song. Don't do it. So he hurried and he came down, received and joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who we hate. He's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods... I give to the poor. The law didn't require that. He didn't do that because of some law. He did that because he was changed. He'd met someone who truly loved him. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The law didn't require that. The law said if you defrauded somebody, you owed them the 100% that you defrauded plus 20%. The Old Testament law says you pay back 120% of what you defraud. But what does this man pay back? 400%. That's what happens. When you come face to face with forgiveness... When you understand the gospel. The gospel is not about judgmentalism. The gospel is not about deciding who's right and who's wrong. Now Christians make sport of that. We like to look down our nose. And we like to count our righteousness. And we like to criticize other people's righteousness. So called. We've got a beam in our eye. And we're busy picking specks out of theirs. And that was the attitude of James and John, Luke chapter 9. You want us to call down fire? Burn these people up. That's what a lot of Christians want to do today. They just want to burn them up. Just want to kick them out. Send them down the road. Have nothing to do with them. And Jesus said to him in Luke 19, 9, Today salvation has come to this house since he's also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You want to underline a verse this morning? You better underline Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know why Jesus came? He didn't come to tell us what was right and what was wrong. There's a lot of Bible here doing all that. We know what's right and what's wrong. And guess what? Every last one of us fail. Turns out we're all wrong. Turns out we may not be the same kind of wrong, but we're all wrong. Your sin may not be his sin or her sin or their sin. In fact, it's probably not, which is why you think you're righteous and they're not. You've forgotten that for every person you accuse of being proud, you're proud. Every person that you accuse of being loose, you're loose. Every person you accuse of having wandering eyes or wandering hands or or wandering feet or, or wandering everything else, you too, only different. We've made sin less offensive for ourselves and more offensive for others. This is the attitude of the Pharisees. You should be right. You should be right. You should be right. You should be right. Listen, friend, get over it. Nobody's right. Nobody. Not me. I stand before you as a man who is anything but right.
But I also stand before you as a man who wants to do right. Like Zacchaeus, I want to make amends. Not for the purpose of earning forgiveness, but as a witness or a testimony to the fact that forgiveness has been given to me. I'm a man who's anything but right, but I am a man who's fully and completely forgiven. And I want this news to be the news of my life. And I want this news to be the news of your life. What did Jesus want for those Samaritans? To burn them up? No. He wanted to preach the forgiveness of God, the mercies of God, the kindness of God, the glories of God, the willingness of God to take the worst sinner, even the prodigal sinner, and save him from his sins. So what can we learn about James' life? We can learn the beauty of the gospel, even as he must have learned. There's a second thing, quickly. We can learn that biblical faithfulness can result in persecution and even death. Let's go back to Acts 12, verse 1. You remember this story. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. We can learn that biblical faith, faithfulness can result in persecution and even death. As a pastor, I help people navigate through their circumstances, and I do so joyfully. This is a common circumstance. Disappointment with God. I did X, I did Y, I did Z, and I expected better treatment from God. I did X, Y, and Z, and I expected God to take better care of me. I expected God to insulate me, protect me. I expected God to protect my marriage. I expected God to protect my children. I expected God to protect our job. I expected God to protect our money in retirement. I expected God to protect our health. I expected God that we would not have tragedy. Because I'd done X and Y and Z. Because I've done, God is now beholding to me. Because I've done, God is now obligated to me. So what can, can we learn from James's life? About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. I don't know what that means to you. We have a little bit better picture since we've come out of several war experiences and a lot of videotape in the last 25 years. But that doesn't mean he took a sword and ran it through him. It means he took a sword and severed his head. Remember, John the Baptist was also killed earlier, years earlier, 15 years probably earlier. And had his head severed. It's a common way for the Romans to incite fear. It's still in practice today in many parts of the world. Behead them, man. And that'll put an end to it. You'll notice the scripture says he saw that it pleased the Jews. Now we need to perhaps use our imagination somewhat. But I would ask you... What does this tell you about James? If it pleases the Jews that James is murdered, or in this case, brought before the, the king and had his head taken from him, if it pleases the Jews, what does that tell you about James? I'll tell you what it doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you that he's unknown. If, if Herod had killed a nobody, would that have pleased the Jews? No. The very fact that it did please the Jews is that this is a somebody. And by the way, 
We know that's the case because what's the second step of his plan? He proceeds to arrest Peter also. So now I've got the second disciple and I'm about to go get the first. And so he does. He arrests Peter. So we can learn that biblical faithfulness can result, dare I say even, will result in persecution. And it might even result in your death. We are shallow students of history. We think somehow, because we have led fairly insulated lives, fairly protected lives, the government has protected us, or perhaps our culture has protected us. We have not much awareness of the sorrow of Christians around the world. There are places in Africa, particularly in Nigeria today, and on the western coast of Africa, where Christians are losing their lives, no exaggeration, every single day for the one single reason that they are Christians. Pastors are losing their lives, their churches are being burned, their women are being captured, and they're they're losing lives, dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands, if we knew the truth, I think, of people have lost their lives just in the last few years. And why is this happening in just that one little piece of the world? Because these are people who are faithful. These are people who are doing the right thing. These are people who are managing their spiritual P's and Q's. And they are suffering because of it. Why do you think James lost his life? It wasn't because he was a nobody. It wasn't because he was unfaithful. It wasn't because he was weak. It wasn't because he was shy. It wasn't because he was hiding over in the corner. It wasn't because he wasn't standing up. It wasn't because he wasn't speaking out. In fact, it was because he was doing all of those things. He is speaking out. John the Baptist spoke out, got him killed. James speaks out. Here he gets arrested, then killed. Peter speaks out, gets him arrested. The rest of Acts chapter 12 is his deliverance. They pray, and the angel of the Lord comes and breaks him out of jail. Listen, somebody going to break me out of jail. I hope it's an angel of the Lord because I know it's going to work. In this case, Peter gets broken out of jail and Herod gets so angry, he takes the jail keepers and kills them. Then he goes off to Caesarea, which is over in the Mediterranean, to his beach house. And there, God kills him. All that happens right here in Acts chapter 12. But it begins with the beheading of James. I want to remind you that if you're faithful to God, you should expect persecution. You should expect sorrow, difficulty. And the fact that you don't is absolute grace, pure grace. God doesn't owe you that. If God's been faithful to you for a year, he doesn't owe you a second. If God's been faithful to you for a decade, he doesn't owe you a second. (coughs) If God has protected you from what other people have had to walk through, He doesn't owe you that. It's been His grace that has provided that for you. Why do some, I've asked this rhetorically many times, why do some suffer persecution? Why is James martyred and his brother, John, is the disciple who lives the longest life, so long that he actually writes the book of Revelation. He's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. There's some debate whether or not he's, he actually dies an old man, so to speak, in exile, or whether or not he's actually martyred on the Isle of Patmos. We don't really know for sure. But, but the point, of course, is why does James die early and his brother die late? Who knows? We don't know such things. It's beyond our pay grade. But what we do know is that both men are faithful, and God loved them both and cared for them both and shepherded them both. But if you believe in eternal life, friend, understand this. Every bit of this life is merely prologue. This is just the introduction. There's a whole book of your life that hasn't been written. You haven't experienced it. You don't know what God has for you. You don't understand the joys of heaven, the glories of heaven. You don't understand the relationships of heaven. You don't understand any of that. You just believe that. And so if God calls us to live for a short season and die, 
so be it. I'm always reminded Job's story. Job experienced more pain than perhaps any person who ever lived saved Jesus. And you remember his wife's comment at the end of it was, curse God and die. Curse God and die. God took away your children. God took away your possessions. God took away your money. God took away your livelihood. God took away your health. He boils, covered his life from head to toe and so forth. God took away all that. His wife's counsel was, if you, if you think worshiping God is profitable, prove it. God took all these things. How is it beneficial for you to worship God? But the scripture says Job wouldn't do it. He wouldn't curse God. He didn't understand God. He argues with God. He rebukes God, but he never condemns God. Think of that for our lives. We can learn from James that biblical faithfulness can result in persecution and maybe even our death, maybe in our untimely death, and yet we can trust God, and we will. We will. May it be said of Morrison Heights Church, may it be said of you and me, individual members of Morrison Heights Church, my, how those people love God, no matter how difficult it becomes, no matter how hard it becomes, how they worship, how they revel, in God, how they glory, and the one whose glory is unmistakable. I ask you today to consider your relationship to this Christ. Jesus died so that you might have life eternal, and we have already entered into that life. Let us live accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your tender mercies this morning. Pray, Father, for your grace upon us as we respond to you, as we follow you. I pray, Father, if there be one here without Christ that would reflect upon their denial of Christ before today and they would come to faith. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, give us much grace. Lord, turn us, turn us back to you. Turn us to glory, turn us to joy, turn us to hope in God. Thank you for your kindness today. Thank you for Jesus, the gospel. God came to save sinners, of which we are chief among them. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.